0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter one? Last week we started walking through uh, Paul's ancient letter to this church at Philippi and learning how we can have joy in Jesus uh, no matter what is going on in our lives. And today we're going to pick off. Pick up where we left off in our study in verses 3 through 11. And this is a beautiful part of this letter uh, where Paul tells these believers uh, how he prays for them. uh, And he tells these believers what he prays uh, for them when he does. And so let's read it together. Philippians 1 uh, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, ...making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. And as much as both in my chains and then in the defense and confirmation of the gospel... You all are partakers with me of grace, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow before you, Lord, how we are in need to hear a word from you. Lord, all week long we hear messages. From this world messages that are contrary to your word are contrary to what your desire is for us what your perfect will is for our lives father we pray that in these moments you would cut through all of that and that your holy spirit would take this perfect word that you would wash our minds with it and our hearts with it, Father, that you would change the very way that we think and live and love and pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you think about it, everybody that you meet wants to experience joy, right? We were designed to experience joy and so Uh, We chase after, the world chases after, right, things that uh, they believe will bring lasting joy. Whether it's uh, maybe success in uh, their career or in relationships or in family life or in uh, money or comforts or whatever it might be. The world wants uh, to pursue things that it believes will bring them lasting joy. And yet for so many, lasting joy simply eludes them. Right? Even when they uh, arrive at, at those achievements and those successes, they find that the joy that comes with those successes is very short-lived. Even when we're able to get that new toy, that thing that we have wanted, the pleasure that comes with that is, is again, short-lasting, and that lasting joy that we long for still eludes us. And that's why it's so remarkable that Paul, as he sat in a Roman prison cell, was The most joyful man in all of Rome. What did Paul know 2,000 years ago that so many in the world today do not know? How is it possible that despite his circumstances, even though his circumstances weren't wonderful, even though in fact his circumstances were pretty terrible, how is it that he was so remarkably joyful? And, and the word joy, in fact, the first use of the word joy in this letter shows up in verse 4. And that word is going to show up a bunch more as we make our way through this letter. But, but here in verse 4, Paul talks about how he had joy in his spirit as he prays for this church. And actually, that's one of the keys to living a joyful life in Jesus is spending a lot of time talking to Jesus in prayer. Here's a just a basic principle for us to remember that basically cuts through everything we're going to talk about here uh, this morning. Here's the principle, very simple. A prayerful life is a joyful life. A prayerful life is is a joyful life. One of the secrets to living with joy is prayerfulness. And conversely, one of the reasons why so many Christians struggle to live consistently with joy is prayerlessness. Paul could have joy in jail, in part because he was living on joyful knees. Spending time with the God of the universe, praying for other people. As we walk through these verses this morning, I want us to observe Five things, five observations about Paul's prayer life for these Philippian Christians. And there's so much we can learn from Paul's example in each of these areas. And the first observation is is so simple and so basic and and really so obvious. But, But here it is. Paul prayed for other believers. Paul prayed For other believers. After the greeting at the beginning of this letter in verses one and two, this is the first thing that he wanted to share with this church. He wanted them to know that he prayed for them and that he prayed for them a lot. In verse three, we read this I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So his praying for them started with remembering them. And that's so important because he wasn't physically present with them, of course, right? They were in Philippi. He was sitting in a prison cell in jail in Rome, and yet he was able to remember them, to think back to his time with them. And I'm sure that part of what he thought back to was was those first days that he spent in Philippi that we talked about last week the days that are recorded for us in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and his friends walked into the city of Philippi and just began to share the gospel. I'm sure Paul remembered Lydia, right? That wealthy woman from Asia who was the first woman on the continent of Europe to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ that day by the riverside. I'm sure he remembered her. I'm sure Paul remembered that demon-possessed slave girl who was set free from the demon that possessed her and came to put her faith in Christ. I'm sure he remembered her. And I'm sure that as he sat there in that prison cell in Rome, he couldn't help but think about that night that he sat in a prison cell in Philippi with his friend Silas. And God sent an earthquake in the middle of that night. It got the attention of the Philippian jailer and I'm sure he remembered him and how all his household that night came to put their faith in Jesus. And those are just the names that we know. I'm sure Paul remembered so many others who came to Christ in Philippi that made up this church and he thought about them and he remembered them and as he remembered him, thankfulness welled up in his heart for them and so he thanked God for them, This is such a beautiful statement here, isn't it? I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, if you say that to somebody, if you say, every time I remember you, I thank God for you, uh, it wouldn't be so meaningful if you only remember them once a decade. Right? Every 10 years, I think about you, and I thank God for you. But that's not the case for Paul, right? Look at the next verse. He says, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all, with joy he's saying every time i pray god brings you to my mind i remember you and i pray for you and i thank god for you can i ask you something is is there anybody in your life that you can say that about is there anybody in your life that you can think that you could say every time i pray i pray for you I'm afraid that for some of us, we would have to rewrite that sentence because really the only person we pray for every time we pray is ourselves, right? So we would have to, we would have to say, always in every prayer of mine, I pray for myself with all joy, Right? Now, maybe if you're married, you could put your spouse in there, right? Maybe if if you're a parent, you could put your children in there, right? That we pray for our family. But is there anybody beyond that, right? These weren't biological family members of Paul. He's saying this about his church family. Is there anybody outside of your biological family that you could say, every time I pray, I pray for you? And if there isn't, why isn't there? Why do we not pray for people the way Paul for people. And I think part of it, part of the reason why we don't pray for other people very regularly is, is just to put it frankly, is that we're not praying at all very regularly, right? And so it isn't just the content of our prayers or who we're praying for. It's just the fact that we're not praying very regularly. We need to let the Word of God challenge us on that, right? Because the Bible says to pray without ceasing. And we need to remember what a privilege it is, right, to be able to come before the God of the universe in prayer we able to start our day in his presence this uh, past week I saw a panel discussion where they were talking about uh, the life and the legacy of Billy Graham one of the people on the panels was uh, his grandson and they were speaking particularly about Billy Graham's humility and and his grandson said you know for the longest time I never even knew that he was anybody important or anybody knew his name because of the way he carried himself And one day, when he got a little bit older, he asked his grandfather, and he said, Grandpa, how how is it that, that you're so humble in spite of all the things that you've accomplished? And he said that his grandfather, Billy Graham, looked at him a little cross just for saying that he was humble because he didn't really think he was. But then he said this. He said, you know what? It's hard to be too proud when you start every day with God. I thought that's a good quote to remember. When you start every day in prayer with the God of the universe, the God who created heaven and earth, it's hard to be too proud, isn't it? And yet what a privilege that is. And it's a privilege that's not just available for Billy Graham. It's a privilege that's available for every child of God in Christ. That every day we can come into his presence in prayer. That we can speak with him. And yet as I thought about the reason why we don't pray for people like Paul does here, I thought that you know, sometimes even when we do pray, even when we do take that privilege to be able to talk to God in prayer, sometimes we're so self-absorbed in the way that we pray, right? Again, we pray for ourselves, or as James said, we ask amiss that we might spend it on our pleasures. We're not coming to God with a right heart. Now, of course, it's okay to ask God for things, to ask God for things that we need, to tell him what's going on in our lives and ask him to be at work. He wants us to do that. But love compels us to intercede for others, to pray for others. Paul said he prayed for these Christians in this church with thankfulness in his heart, with joy in his heart and part of why. Paul was able to pray for the Christians in this church the way that he did is because of how he saw them, because of how he viewed him. That's the second observation I want us to see here. Paul saw other believers as partners in his gospel work. Paul saw other believers as partners in his gospel work. He says here, I pray for you all the time. I I thank God for you. I make requests for you all with joy because of what? Look at verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That, that word fellowship, it, it can mean fellowship or just communion with someone else. But in this context, it more likely means participation or, or even the idea of partnership. He's thanking God for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. And it's a partnership that goes back a while. Right? He says, from the first day until now, you've been partners with me in the gospel. What what that means is, again, when we think back to Acts 16 and we think about Lydia and the, the slave girl and the Philippian jailer, these folks, after they came to know Christ, they didn't just warm up a pew in church, right? They joined him as partners in the work of the gospel, sharing the gospel with their whole city. And that's how the church began to grow and many others came to know Christ, And even after Paul left and went on to other towns to plant other churches, these believers were partners with him in the gospel. We're going to find out later they financially supported Paul in his work. They sent people to minister to Paul and to encourage Paul when he was in prison. They were his partners from the first day until now. They prayed with him. They served with him. They celebrated what God was doing with him. They were supporters of him. They were partners in the work of the gospel. And I guess this just leads us to a pretty obvious question. Paul saw these other Christians as his partners in the gospel. Is that how you see the other people in our church? Do you right now view the other people sitting around you in our church as your partners in the work of the gospel? Do we see each other that way or not? And I guess even more fundamental than that, if we're going to see each other as partners in this mission The first thing we need to understand is that we have been given a mission, right? That we're on mission, that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has sent us out into the world and that our chief purpose is to glorify His name by telling others about Him, by making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. That's our mission as a church, but that's the mission of every Christian within our church. And once we understand that that's our mission, We're able to begin to view others around us as partners in that mission. It changes the way that we see one another. And that's one of the things that connects us across all lines is our joint mission in the gospel. You might be an engineer and uh, Joe over there might be a school teacher, but you have the same mission given from the same Lord. You might be white and the person sitting next to you might be black, but we are one in Christ. We are saved saved by the same Jewish Savior with nail prints in his hand who has sent us out on the same mission to take this gospel to the world. And when we understand that, it begins to bind us together as one. You are not alone. You are a part of a team. At the beginning of our service, Pastor uh, Scott Terry referenced the the Olympics. And I don't know about you, but I just can't get enough of the Olympics. Every two years that the Olympics comes on, I mean, I'm glued to it. My my family is glued to it. I just, I love watching it. And, And I know some of the events are individual events, but some of them are team events. Right? Like the hockey team, right? Our ladies hockey team that won the gold medal this past week right, the four-man bobsled that was on last night. We didn't win that one, but another team event, right? Pastor Scott mentioned curling, also a team event, right? Our, our men's team won the first ever gold for the U.S. in that event. Again, it's a team event. I'm not really sure what everybody's job is on that team. It looks to me like they're all just sweeping up the ice, and they should be sing, singing Chim Chim Cheree" with Julie Andrews, but they're out there. They all have a job. They all have a role to do, and I'm sure they're all important. Because they're on a team. And church, we're on a team as well. Like Paul and the Philippians who were partners in the work of the gospel. We are all partners in the work of the gospel. And once we understand that, we're going to begin to pray for each other more. Pray for each other as we go out together to do this So Paul saw other believers as partners in gospel work, and so should we. Here's the third observation I want us to see, and it's there in verse 6. Paul was confident that God would finish what he started in other believers' lives. Verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm I'm sure of this. I'm, I'm convinced of this. I'm persuaded about this, that this is true. And his confidence is not just based on a mere human hope, right? His confidence is based on the promise of God. And he says, I know that God who has began this work in you, that word can mean inaugurated this work inside of you, that this God who did that, He's going to complete that work at the day of Jesus Christ. There's so much to point out in this verse. But one thing to notice, of course, is that it says that it is God who started this work in us. Again, if you think back to the story of Lydia in Acts chapter 16, when she heard Paul sharing the gospel message, we might say that she believed in Christ, and of course she did. But the text of God's word says that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So she was able to believe because the Lord opened her heart heart and Philippians 1 6 says the same thing right if you know Jesus as your savior today it's because the Lord started a good work inside of you and me and why is that important it's important because listen if I start something you know what I might not finish it I've got half finished projects all over my house I've got half-read books on my bookshelf. I've thrown many half-eaten sandwiches into the trash. I've started half of a lot of poems. I've started half of a lot of songs, right? There's a lot of things that I've started and yet never finished. But when God starts something, he always finishes it. And the God who started a good work inside of you, friend, will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. We can have confidence in that. And so this verse speaks to our security in Christ. And it's a security rooted in the fact that God is the one who does the saving. And because he is, God will never let us go. This ties in with what Jesus said in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And Paul is speaking with that same sense of security and confidence here in Philippians 1.6. He started a good work in you, and he's going to finish it. Maybe you've seen that old bumper sticker that said, he is not finished with me yet. Have you ever seen that? He's not finished with me yet. We need to be careful about bumper sticker theology. But there's a lot of truth in that one. And now that's not an excuse for us to sin against the Lord. We're going to see that later on in this passage. But again, there is truth there. He's not finished with us yet. We are still works in progress. One day he's going to complete that work, but that day hasn't come yet. And so we need to trust God's working in our own lives. But you know what? We also need to apply that scripture to other people as well. We need to believe that God is at work in their lives, and if they truly know Jesus, one day he's going to complete that work. If your husband or your wife isn't perfect, but you are, and I say that with tongue firmly planted in cheek, (laughs) do you believe that God will complete what he started in your husband or your wife's life? If you're a parent, do you believe that God will finish what he started in your child's life if they know Jesus Christ as their Savior, right? We need to apply this scripture in the lives of those we know and the lives of those we love. And we need to apply this scripture to each other in the church. As we pray for each other, that we pray with confidence because we know that God will fulfill this promise in the life of everyone in this church who is truly born again. And so when we're praying and we're about to see specifically what Paul prays for, for these Christians, and when we're praying these things for one another, we can pray these things with confidence because we know God has made a promise that when we pray for their spiritual growth, God is already at work in us for our spiritual growth. God is already continuing that work that he started in us, and one day he will perfectly complete it. One day, church, we will be just like Jesus. Here's another observation from Paul's words here. Number four, Paul deeply loved other believers. Paul deeply loved other believers. You can see his love for these Christians all the way throughout these verses, but especially in verses 7 and 8. Now he starts out in verse 7 talking about how it's right for him to be so confident about them to be so confident about where they are spiritually. He says, it's right for me to think that because there's a lot of evidences of their faith that he has seen that are observable in their life. And one of those evidences is the way that they supported Paul, the way that they hung with Paul for the sake of the gospel, not only when times were good, but also when times were bad. Right? And In verse 7, he says, "...and as much as both in my chains..." And then, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. So when times were good, when times were bad, even when Paul was in prison, which would have been a great source of shame and embarrassment in that culture, these Christians stayed with him. They kept ministering to him. They sent people to encourage him. They supported him. And Paul says even that is evidence of how passionate you are about the gospel, which is evidence of the grace of God at work in your heart, and your life. But then in the middle of verse 7, he says this, because I have you in my heart. I have you in my heart. That's something we still say today, right? But usually you find that on a Valentine's Day card, right? Usually that's just something you would say to your spouse or your significant other, right? I have you in my heart. He's saying this to this church, right? He's saying this to these other believers. I have you in my heart. And this isn't just a figure of speech. He does have them in his heart right? He's thinking about them all the time. He's praying for them. He's thanking God for them. He remembers them. He has them in his heart. And then he says even more about that in verse 8. He says, for God is my witness. It's almost like he's taking the witness stand, right? He's putting his hand on the Bible, right? And he's saying, I want you to believe this, Philippian church, for God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. The word long for there is is translated as yearning in some English translations. He he says, I yearn for you, and I yearn for you with with the affection of Christ. That, That word affection, it was used in the Gospels to speak about the compassion of Jesus Christ. It means a gut level, just almost intestinal, right, love and compassion for other people. He could not, literally, he could not have picked a stronger word to speak about how much he loved these people. And he says, as God is my witness, I love you like that. And again, the challenge for us is pretty straightforward. Do we love each other in our church like that? Right? Could you take the witness stand? Could you say, with God as my witness, I yearn for you all, I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And if we can't say that, why can't we say that? Now, again, we need to remember that this kind of love that Paul is speaking about here is a supernatural love. It's it's a love that only God can give us. Romans 5 and verse 5, Paul speaks about all these different characteristics that God wants to produce in our lives, including hope. And then he says this, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given us. So God is the one who pours out his love into our hearts, and then he wants us to pour that love out on one another. He supernaturally enables us to love like this. So we need to understand that first and foremost. This isn't something we can self-produce. But I think for us to be able to love people the way that Paul talks about here, first of all, we just have to be involved in each other's lives in the way that Paul was involved in their lives. And and I think that's hard for us today, and I think the reason for that is that many Christians think about church as a place I go once a week, right? Or or an event that I attend at 8.30 on Sunday mornings on Derry Road, but we don't think about the other Christians who are sitting around us as family members in Christ, as those that we have been called to love with a yearning, with an affectionate kind of love that only God can give us. And so we read these words about how much Paul loved these people and how Paul prayed for these people. And for some of us, it almost seems odd, right? And and really it would almost be impossible for us to carry this out because you can't pray for people or love people like this if you don't know them. Right? And so if we're not involved in each other's lives enough to know each other in the church and enough to love each other in the church, we're not going to be able to live this out. And so even though this is a message on prayer and a message on love, I think for some of us, the, the, the challenge here and the call for us is going to be just to rethink the way we think about church. Right, that, that, that we would be able to say words like this to other people in the church, it starts with building relationships with other people in the church. We've already made several observations about Paul's prayer life here. We've seen, first of all, just that he prays for other believers, right? Basic. Also that that he viewed other believers as his partners in the gospel. We've seen that Paul was confident that God would finish the work that he started in other believers' life. And then we just saw that Paul deeply loved these other believers. Here's a final observation from these last few verses. Number five, Paul prayed for God to do specific things things in the lives of other believers. So Paul did not just pray in a generic sense, right? He didn't just pray, God just bless all the believers in the world, right? He prayed specific things for specific people, and he tells us what he prayed for these particular Christians in verses 9 through 11. First off, Paul prayed that their love would grow, right? Verse 9, and this I pray, this is what I pray for you that your love may abound still more and more. Earlier we said that a lot of times we don't pray at all, or if we do pray, we tend to pray for ourselves. But I'd like to say this as well, even when we do pray for others, including others in our church, how do we typically pray for them? A lot of times we pray for their physical needs. Now, should we pray for the physical needs of others in our church? Absolutely, we should. Sometimes, when we pray for other believers, we pray for their emotional needs, that they would have the strength to get through a certain situations. Should we pray that for each other? Certainly, we should pray that for each other. But notice what everything in this prayer is about. Every need that Paul prays for in this particular prayer is a spiritual need. And more than anything else, that is what we should be praying for each other. We should be praying for the spiritual needs of the other believers in our church. And first and foremost, he prays for something that many of us maybe have never thought to pray for other Christians. He prays that their love would grow. Right? That the love that God has poured out in their hearts would grow and would spill over, would abound more and more. Is that something that we are praying for each other? He's not praying that they would just have love to start with because that's just basic to the Christian life, right? In 1 John 3, it, it says that if we don't have love for our brothers, then we don't know Christ as our Savior. And if we know Christ as our Savior, he fills us with love. So he's not praying that they would have love. He knows they already have love. He's seen that firsthand. He is praying that their love would grow. And that's what we should be praying for our church as well. So many times people share with me how they believe that our church is a loving church and I love to hear that it's a great encouragement for our church to hear that at first family uh, many times we'll go around and ask people how they ended up at our church and why they stayed uh, here and many times people say the first time I came just the way that people spoke to me the way that people loved me I knew that I was at home that's a great word that that is that is what we want to see and yet church let's not be content with where we are Right As we read this verse and we read Paul praying for this great church at Philippi and praying that their love would abound more and more, church, let's pray for each other that our love would abound more and more because we can love more than we do right now. God has been sending so many new people to our church. that you know that every Sunday is somebody's first Sunday at our church? Let me say that again. Every Sunday is somebody's first Sunday at our church. Do you remember what it was like to go to a church for the very first time? But let's love those folks well, right? Let's do for those folks what we wish someone would done for us the first time we came, right? First of all, let's just kind of scoot over, right, and give them room, right, and not have like the reserve sign on the seat, Right? Right? Let's ask them if we can help them find their way. Let's invite them to our life group, to our Sunday school class. Right. Let's invite them out to eat. Right. Let's just reach out to them and show the love of Christ to them. But not only, church, let's show love to first-time visitors. Let's show love to people who have been here forever. Right. Let's go past surface-level conversations. Let's share real needs and let's meet those needs within its, when it's within our ability to do so. And let's not only love people inside the church, let's let's love people outside the church as well. Right? Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. So let's love our neighbors. Let's love our coworkers. Let's love the lost enough to share about God's love in Christ with them. Let's pray that our love would abound more and more. He prayed that specifically for them. But then, and this is so important, he prayed that they would know what to love and that they would know how to love, right? Again, in verse nine, he says, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more, listen, in knowledge and all discernment. So it's almost like if you think about love as like a little tree, right, that's growing up in your life that that love growing up as a tree is staked down to two wooden stakes that helps that love to grow straight and tall. And those two wooden stakes are the stakes of knowledge and discernment. He wants us to love with knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and understanding of spiritual things an understanding of how things really are. And then discernment, the ability to put that knowledge into practice, to apply it in our lives in the way that we love. So when somebody says, you know what, it's, it's okay for me to have an affair uh, because this other woman is somebody that I really love. That's not love staked to biblical knowledge and discernment. Right? That's not biblical love. He's calling us to love in a way that shows knowledge and discernment of the word of God. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say that you may approve, that you may prove by testing, by experience, the things that are excellent. He's not even just speaking here about knowing the difference between right and wrong. Again, that's a basic for Christian living. He's saying that we might know the difference between what is good and what is best. Right? that we might understand the things that are excellent, the things that God wants us to do in order to love him and love others best. He wants us to love in that kind of way. So let's pray for each other the same way Paul did. Let's pray for each other that our love would grow, but let's pray that our love would grow in knowledge and discernment, that we would know what to love and we would know how to love it. But then also Paul says that he prayed that they would be authentic and blameless in the way they live their lives. He didn't just pray for their love, he prayed for their integrity. And you see that at the end of verse 10, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Sincere and without offense, blameless. That idea of blamelessness refers to our outer, outward conduct. And it means that we live in such a way that there's no obvious area, right, that somebody could point at and say, well, that's not how a Christian should live. That doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, right? We've already talked about that. None of us are going to be perfected until that day that we're with Jesus. And yet this is what we want to pursue, right? We want to pursue blameless living in our lives outwardly. But, but that word sincerity goes even further than that. That word sincerity speaks to inner life, to a purity of our inner life, the life that God alone is able to see. And, and the word that's used there for sincerity is a word that was used in the marketplace in ancient pottery. Because there were some uh, dishonest pottery makers, we'll say, who would make pots and the pots would break somewhere in the process. Which means they were worthless, right? They weren't able to hold water. They weren't able to do what the person buying it wanted them to do. And, And yet because they were unscrupulous, right, they would take wax and they would carefully cover over those cracks and sell them as if it was a good piece of pottery. The only thing that a buyer could do in order to tell where those cracks were was to take that piece of pottery and to hold it up to the sunlight. And that's literally what this word means, to be tested by the sunlight. And to hold that piece of pottery up to the sunlight. And when you did that, and when the rays of sunshine hit that piece of pottery, you could clearly see where the cracks were, if there were any there. And what God is saying to us in this verse, he's saying, I want you to be a piece of pottery that when it's held up to the sunlight, there are no cracks there. There's nothing that you're trying to hide because you're authentic, right? You're sincere in the way that you are pursuing after God. Again, perfection won't happen in this lifetime, but are you sincere? Are you authentic? Are you pursuing a blameless life, the kind of life that pleases God? That's what we should be praying for each other, church praying for one another that we would be sincere, that we would be real, that we would be authentic in the way that we pursue Jesus. And then also in verse 11, we see Paul prayed for these Christians that the fruit of right living would grow in their lives. He says being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. So again, if you think about that tree of love that's growing up in our lives that's staked down to those two stakes of knowledge and discernment, what he wants to see, what God wants to see is that as that tree grows, there would be fruits of righteousness growing on the tree of our life. Now what is righteousness? Righteousness just means rightness. Right? Right living, right thinking, right speaking, Now, we didn't do any of those things right before we met Jesus. Paul said even our best efforts are like filthy rags. But when we come to know Jesus, right, he covers us with his own righteousness. And yet in our daily lives, we still sometimes fail to live righteously, don't we? We still sometimes stumble. We sometimes fall. Sometimes on the tree of, of my life, there's sinful Scott fruit growing there, right, instead of perfect, righteous Jesus fruit growing there. And that's what we should be praying for each other, that there would be less and less of the sinful us fruit, right? And more and more of the righteous Jesus fruit that is growing up in our lives and the way that we're living and the way that we're thinking and the way that we're speaking. Let's pray for each other because we need each other's prayers, don't we? In order to live that way. And this is the description of the kind of fruit this is talking about in Galatians chapter five. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fruit that God wants to see more and more of growing in our lives. And then all of this, all of these things that we pray for each other, we pray for each other because of the last thing that Paul prayed for them. He prayed that their lives would bring God glory and praise. The very last phrase of verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. And as believers, we should have a burning passion, right? That our lives would bring God glory and praise. There's no other higher motive than that, right? We're not praying for the glory of God so that something else can happen, right? We're praying that all of this would happen so that God would be glorified, right? The God who made us, the God who created us for his glory, the God who died for us, who sent his son to die on the cross, for our sin and who rose again, the one who has saved us, that now our lives that have been redeemed by his grace would bring him praise and glory and honor. And this is what we pray for one another. We pray for each other that all these things we've talked about would be true in each other's lives so that our God would receive more glory and more praise that is due his name. Church, we're going to end this message a little bit differently uh, here this morning, what I want to do uh, is I just want to invite us to spend a minute just doing what we've talked about. I, I just want to invite us to spend a minute just in prayer. What well, we've said that the prayerful life is the joyful life, and we've seen Paul model that, right? Paul model for us how to pray for other believers, and, and so again, I just want us to take some time and do that, right? To pray for each other, to pray for someone else in This church, and I I put up a a sample prayer here that is based off of Paul's prayer for the Philippians in this passage. It's basically just a restatement of what we've just read, what we've just talked about. And so as God places a name on your heart right now, someone in our church family that he's calling you to pray for, would you just kind of put their name in the blanks there, right? Say, Lord, I, I thank you for this person. He or she is my partner in serving you and telling others about you. And so help them, help their love to grow more and more. Help them to show true knowledge and discernment in the way that they love. May this person say yes to the things that are excellent and no to the things that aren't. May they be authentic in the way that they follow you. And more and more, may the fruit of what is right be growing in their life. And may you be glorified in their life, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.